This is Crowcasts, the podcast from Crow in the UK, a leading audit, tax, advisory and risk firm with global reach and local expertise. In our podcasts, you will hear from our specialists offering insight and pragmatic advice to businesses of all sizes, professional practices, non-profit organisations, pension funds and private clients. This is the second regular broadcast that takes place monthly as part of Crowcasts, the podcast from Crow UK. My name is Jim G, and I'm a partner and head of forensic services for Crow. I'm also a visiting professor and chair of the Centre for Counterfraud Studies at University of Portsmouth, which is Europe's leading research centre concerning cybercrime, fraud, bribery and corruption. The broadcast series provides a mixture of comment, interviews and discussion. The views expressed will be fearless and sometimes controversial, and those expressing them take full responsibility for what is said. The reason why this broadcast is so relevant now is because we are in the middle of a period of massively increased fraud and cybercrime, spurred by the economic crisis arising from the COVID-19 health crisis. Each broadcast includes comment on the latest news, an interview with a leading forensic specialist, and a discussion about a controversial subject. Today, I will be interviewing Roger Cook, who is currently Regional Security Director for World Travel Protection, a leading global emergency assistance company and a member and shareholder of the International Assistance Group, the largest assistance organisation in the world. As well as his current role, Roger has previously held leading roles in security working to protect some of the world's biggest mining and energy companies against fraud, bribery and corruption, and in some of the most difficult places to do this. But first, let's turn to some of the key news this week. Representatives of HMRC gave evidence to the UK Public Accounts Committee, and the BBC reported these exchanges. Up to £3.5 billion in coronavirus job retention scheme payments may have been claimed fraudulently or paid out in error, the government has said. HMRC told MPs on the Public Accounts Committee it estimates that between 5 and 10% of furlough cash has been wrongly awarded. The latest data shows the programme has cost the government £35.4 billion sterling so far. The scheme has paid 80% of the wages of workers placed on leave since March, up to a maximum of £2,500 a month. Speaking to MPs on 7th September, HMRC's Permanent Secretary, Jim Harra, said, We've made an assumption for the purposes of our planning that the error and fraud rate in this scheme could be between 5 and 10%. That will range from deliberate fraud through to error. The Public Accounts Committee estimates that a total of £30 in tax was lost in 2019 due to taxpayer error and fraud. These really shocking figures don't appear to take account of the increase in fraud which takes place in every recession. Over the last 40 years, this has averaged a 4% increase for every 1% reduction in GDP. In March, UK GDP shrank by 6.9% and another 20% in April. In May, Crow and the University of Portsmouth 
estimated that losses would run at about 14% of expenditure. So the real figures for losses may be nearer to 5 billion sterling rather than 3.5 billion. Whatever the numbers are, it is clear that we all need to protect ourselves against the current surge in fraud. Given the shrinkage in GDP, many frauds will only now become evident and with the steepest recession ever comes the largest spike in fraud. Existing defences will not be enough unless we act now. And there are six things which we need to do. We need to review and strengthen existing controls. We need to strengthen a culture of integrity and the deterrent effect against the dishonest minority. We need to profile and identify high-risk areas and people. We need to deploy data science techniques to identify anomalies and potential fraud as soon as possible. We need to make sure that legal and forensic professional advisors are ready to help quickly if needed. And finally, we need to make sure we have access to the latest information and intelligence about the rapidly evolving threat. In summary, we need to make sure we are properly protected against one of the largest surges in fraud and cybercrime that this country has ever seen. Now let's turn to this week's interview. Roger Cook joins us from Brisbane, Australia. Roger is currently Regional Security Director for World Travel Protection and previously held leading roles in security, working to protect some of the world's biggest mining and energy companies against fraud, bribery and corruption, and in some of the most difficult places to do this. Welcome, Roger. Uh, thanks very much for having me, Jim. Let's start with you telling us a little bit about your background and history. Mm-hmm. As, as you said, I'm currently working for World Travel Protection as Regional Security Director. Uh, but for the last 14 years, I spent most of my time living and working overseas in the extractives industry, uh, working for global mining and oil and gas companies. Uh, prior to enter, entering the mining industry, I enjoyed a, um, a semi-successful career with the Australian Defence Force, where I mostly stay out of trouble. Um, I started in the infantry before transferring to Intelligence Corps sort of halfway through my career. When I was in the military, I was fortunate to see service in Rwanda, East Timor and the Solomon Islands, uh, as well as Iraq. And after 16 years, I was lucky enough to get an opportunity to be part of a team uh, responsible for building a mine in Papua New Guinea. It was a tough decision to leave, but, you know, Papua New Guinea is an amazing country and it was a great opportunity. So from uh, the military straight into mining, and I was lucky to pick up a, a senior security manager's role there. I really don't think there's any better environment to sort of develop your skills in the security world in Papua New Guinea. Um, Since working in Papua New Guinea, I've been lucky to live and work in places like Zambia, uh, Indonesia, and and most recently Madagascar. Um, Each of these countries and the projects I worked on had their own unique challenges, and the roles and responsibilities can vary for a security manager. So throughout all those different sites, I was responsible for, for everything from security to emergency response, um, camps and catering, and, and, and a broad array of different roles um, in, in the mining sector. And in addition to you know, working for these large gold mining companies, I've spent some time uh, in oil and gas working for Total. Again, I'm in Papua New Guinea, um, as well as some corporate security roles uh, in the travel risk management space, which is, again, where I find myself um, working today. And what are you doing now with World Travel Protection and why is it important to people? 
Yeah, so World Travel Protection's been around for nearly 30 years um, under various guises, and we're, we're a travel risk management company, part of the Zurich Group. So, and we support um, leisure and corporate travellers uh, going going about their business. So, you know, from a corporate perspective, we we prepare travellers prior to travel um, with information and you know, sharing of intelligence and training and preparedness before they go into complex environments. And should something go wrong, then obviously we're there to support from a medical and security perspective. Yeah, we're a bit different to some of the other organisations where we, where we do have a massive uh, leisure book, and probably the largest in the world in, in that space. And that means that we're able to you know, rely on that volume of leisure travel um, to, to provide cost containment to, to all of our clients, our leisure and corporate clients. So travel risk management, obviously it's an interesting industry to be in at the moment given the lack of travel, but we are still moving people all over the world. You know, mining doesn't shut down, you know, agriculture still goes ahead, and you can't do this sort of work from home. So, you know, in, in the last week alone, we've helped uh, organisations prepare their people to move into West Africa and to, into parts of Asia, because travel still has to continue, as you know. So, you know, World Travel Protection, you know, we, we, we're really fortunate at the moment where We rely on some really good technology and we've just bought a couple of new pieces to market around uh, travel tracking um, in in apps and also a a risk management portal. But that technology is only as good as the people that back it up. And we're we're very fortunate to have, you know, really super qualified uh, medical staff uh, across our our numerous sites. You know, we have have facilities in Australia, Malaysia, China and, and North America. Uh, in addition to the, the, the medical teams, we have uh, logistics professionals as well as security professionals supporting our leisure and corporate clients. So, you know, we're seeing a lot of organisations sort of look at their travel risk management programs and look at what they might be six, eight, 10, 12 months from now and where we can play a part. So a lot of preparation, a lot of planning going on at the moment, uh, waiting for things to return to normal. Sounds good. I mean, we we first worked together in mining um, in Zambia and then again in Indonesia and Madagascar. The question I have to ask you is, which country was the hardest to do your job in? Uh, that's a really good question. And, and each country came with its own list of challenges. I think for me, Madagascar was one of the toughest um, areas that I'd worked in. Um, you know, the reason we brought Crow UK in at the time is we'd uncovered through our internal investigation process, a rather large fraud that had been committed by one of the contractors there. Um, you know, an internal investigation section or team is you know, usually quite busy. You know, they're, they're responding to a lot of business as usual activities and we didn't have the forensic skills that Crow UK could bring to the party. So for me, it was really, it was Madagascar. Um, in that particular case, in the set of circumstances that we were in, was probably the most difficult from a fraud and corruption perspective. Um, you know, other countries, we, we might have more violence. Uh, uh, there might be more corruption um, in places like Indonesia, but definitely Madagascar, I think, from a, from a fraud perspective, uh, was the most difficult. Like you, I've worked, um, obviously not for as long, but I've worked at several mine sites in Africa, Asia, different parts of the world. Um, but what would you say was the hardest part of actually working on a remote mine site? And they are pretty remote, aren't they? 
They are remote. And, uh, you know, if you remember, uh, I'm sure from the UK, it probably took you three days to get to the mine site in Zambia. You know, we're, yeah. a, we're a long way up in the, the northwest of the country, a beautiful part of the world, but not the easiest to get to. So when you are that remote, I think the biggest impact, particularly be it remote or even in developing countries, is probably the, the lack of capable policing options. So you become very self-reliant. Now, and if you can't do it, then you need to have the, the organisations at hand that you trust that can come and support you, um, you know, in the endeavours to try and keep the mines safe or to try and protect our assets. You know, in some instances, there may be a, a local police capability that we could engage uh, to help us to detect uh, and control fraud and, and corruption. But in order to engage them, we might have to have paid for it, uh, particularly in Indonesia where we have to pay for police support in, in a lot of different ways. But also the police may actually be involved in the criminal activity. So working in these remote, remote mine sites in developing countries, you know, it really is that lack of security and force you know, that, that you can rely on and it makes it very, very interesting. You know, ha- having an internal investigations capability is imperative on these sites and it has to be quite strong, but there is, like I said, only so much they can do. So while they're often busy supporting, you know, internal company policies and procedures, you really need to have a company like Crow that can come in with the detailed forensic investigation skills, you know, the, the, the technology that you bring and support our internal investigation capability. What do you think are the key fraud, bribery and corruption issues, key areas of corruption for mining companies? And kind of linked to that, why aren't they more successful in tackling these issues? Yeah, I think um, you know, mining is an interesting industry when you consider fraud, bribery and corruption. You know, there's so many touch points where employees can come into contact with government and community officials. Now, if, we, if, we, if we consider just the environmental teams, you know, there's the securing of permits to allow the mining to continue is a critical piece of work that needs to be done. You know, quite often the bonuses are linked to the securing of these permits. Their community relation teams, you know, they, they need to make sure that we've got a social licence to operate. They need to engage with community and government officials to ensure that we can, you know, move our consumables in and out on trucks and we can continue to operate the mine as, as, as it's needed. All these areas, all these engagements with stakeholders are really potential points of friction and potential points of corruption. You know, in the, in the past, we've been able to um, sort of identify instances where environmental teams have provided false receipts, you know, marked as entertainment where they've supposedly taken people out for dinner. But these were actually used to pay officials to grant permits. You know, these teams would pay money to government officials and keep some for themselves. You know, having the performance bonuses linked to these permits is also, you know, something else to further motivate the employee to commit, you know, corruption in this manner. So it's very, very difficult um, when you have these needs for the business to operate and people willing to sort of push the boundary. It can impact all levels, you know, particularly fraud. We've seen theft, you know, across these mine sites that you and I have worked on, whether it was Madagascar or Indonesia and Zambia. You know, we've seen theft at low level with employees taking equipment and these sorts of things. But we've also seen senior employees who are well compensated, who are able to sign for, order and receive, you know, equipment which, you know, doesn't arrive or is is um, you know, falsely paid for 
you know, and they're able to benefit from this fraud. Now, often there, there is a thought that the company is big, they can afford it, or that the senior employee has been a diligent worker for many years, and that somehow the company owes them um, this little bit that they take for themselves. So, you know, we've seen fraudsters work across different departments, you know. You, you've got all these checks and balances in the mining system and your procurement systems and finance, but when you have somebody in purchasing, somebody in finance working with a provider, then it's really open to ex, you know, exploitation. So we do see that a lot. Um, why, why aren't mines as successful as they should be in detecting this? I think it comes down to... Yeah, the, the, a number of different factors. I think for me the first factor really is a head-in-the-sand approach. Um, different mines have different requirements. So it'll, it'll vary based on the quarter, what they're chasing and what they're trying to achieve. And to, to tackle something like this would take away from their main goal. So we see that. In fact, I saw it in my last organisation where we knew theft was an issue, but it wasn't considered to be that big of a concern by the management. So it didn't get tackled. And we see that with fraud quite often. You know, I know some of the work that um, Crow's done for me in Indonesia where they where they take a sample size of our procurement and, and, and do the, the forensic accounting over that. Now, that piece of work showed a massive amount of anomalies, but then we had to then capitalise on, on the information that you provided. And it's enough to sort of show an organisation where they're losing money and then getting them to make the changes to stop that something else altogether different. So it can be very, very hard. Um, where you've got um, leadership support, like I think um, in Indonesia, we, we had you know, relatively strong leadership there. Um, we were able to get that support to, to push the work that Crow did for us, but it wasn't the same in Madagascar. And you know, the, the leadership there was probably a little bit, um, lacked a little bit of experience in this space. Um, probably believe that it wouldn't happen to them or that it wasn't as big a concern as, as it clearly was. And so it was very hard to get them to, to spend the time, uh, the effort, and what really is a small amount of money compared to the payback that, um, that, that the sort of work can achieve. Thank you. Uh, I know you've always valued intelligence. That, after all, was your, one of your roles in the Australian Army. And then I recall in Indonesia, um, you made sure you had intelligence about what was being planned in terms of um, attacks on, on the mine. And of course, in your current role, I guess threat intelligence is quite important too. Yeah, so we, we decided to take um, our intelligence from multiple sources. There's been a lot of movement in that space in, in recent months, and we've seen large intelligence collectors and, and analysts or you know, companies that do that collection and, and, and um, analytical work, we've seen them, you know, bought up by other organisations or we've seen mergers or we've seen some drop out of the, um, the business. So we, you know, at World Travel Protection, we make sure that we cover a number of different bases. So obviously it's, it's a large, uh, large world out there and not – one organisation will give you all the information and intelligence that um, we really do need. So the multiple sources approach really works for us. Um, and and obviously it then works for our clients. And if you go back, um, you know, the different layers of intelligence, in Indonesia we were very strong close to the mine or tactically. We had 
a very capable um, team looking after that. Uh, but we also had a, a countrywide and region-wide uh, organisation that was invaluable for us. You know, it, it allowed us to identify um, where we were going strategically. It, it allowed us to plan appropriately. And when we had issues with things like permitting and, and uh, export licences, uh, we were able to sort of work out how big of an impact that might have on not only the business but, but on our people and prepare to make sure that our people were safe should should things change. So intelligence is vital. Um, and you know, even even if I go back to Papua New Guinea, you know, we had a really strong and capable intelligence team there. Uh, it was very, very, very grassroots. Um, we're talking, you know, a country with multiple language groups and, and different, you know, conflicting tribes, and it was very, very complex. Um, but but invaluable to the operation. So I'm, I'm really glad that I've, I've been able to continue sort of growing in, in intelligence capabilities wherever I've worked and, and now at World Travel Protection, you know, we really do have some of the best providers uh, supporting our technology and supporting our teams. Thank you, Roger. Um, I'm afraid that's all the time we've got for today, that, but that was a great interview. There's much more that I would like to, to ask you, but, but perhaps after COVID, yeah, I think after COVID, we'll have a, a, a very interesting conversation, Jim. I look forward to it. That, that would be good. You stay safe in the meantime. Nice to speak to you. Thank you. Likewise, Jim. Thank you. Let's move on to the latest threat intelligence. This week, tensions involving China continue to remain current, with risks evolving on a number of fronts. The rapid increase in Chinese domestic food prices has led a number of analysts to warn of the possibility of food shortages within the country, leading to possible civil unrest and an unpredictable response from the ruling Chinese Communist Party. Closer to home, the cyber attack on the University of Newcastle by the cybercrime group Doppelheimer demonstrates the range of targets that criminals will go after, having previously attacked Tesla and SpaceX. A number of US universities have been victims of similar ransomware attacks in recent months, with the University of California, San Francisco, having paid $1.14 million to recover its data in June. It's estimated that British firms paid out nearly 219 million sterling in ransoms last year, a much more costly exercise than having properly protected themselves in the first place. At Crow, we have deployed a range of tools and services to protect clients from cybercrime. Anyone listening can assess their cybercrime vulnerability by completing our free cyber vulnerability scorecard tool, which you can find at www.crowcybercrime.com. More information about our very detailed weekly threat intelligence report is on the Crow UK website. It's weekly and also country or sector specific. Threat intelligence reports can be produced on that basis where required. That's all for this broadcast. I hope that you enjoyed it. Don't forget to listen in again in a month's time. In the meantime, stay safe and make sure you are properly protected against fraud and cybercrime. Thank you for listening. Tune in next time for another episode of Crowcasts. For more information about Crow, our services, industries we advise and insights, visit crow.co.uk.
We are an independent member of Crow Global, the eighth largest accounting network in the world. You can connect with us on social media by following Crow UK on LinkedIn or at Crow UK on Twitter.